1: Axiom Space's second private mission to the International Space Station has been postponed. New date to be determined. But it raises the new reality of a space traffic jam as a bevy of human space flights mark this year's calendar from NASA's commercial crew missions to SpaceX's private Polaris Dawn. For Axiom, the big vision, though, involves contracted orbital flights to space stations in a one-stop shop, something Axiom board member Rob Meyerson describes as a subscription model for space.
0: So, governments who are or are not participating in the international partnership with NASA on the International Space Station have an opportunity to build their own human spaceflight program and scale it, starting with working with Axiom to advise on what types of research and development to do. Uh, moving on to flying their own astronauts, like Sweden is going to do as part of the agreement that was just announced a few weeks ago with the European Space Agency and Axiom.
1: Meyerson used to run Blue Origin, recruited by Jeff Bezos in 2003 to develop the company's vision for humanity in space, standing up various programs before retiring in 2018. Meyerson is now the founder and CEO of consultant firm De La Lune Space, and an investor in and advisor of many startups. On this episode, we discuss what AX2 means for a commercialized Earth orbit, the future of manufacturing, and the economic case for colonization of the moon. I'm Morgan Brennan, and this is Manifest Space. Rob Meyerson, thank you so much for joining me today. It's such a pleasure to speak with you.
0: Uh, thank you, Morgan. It's really a pleasure to be here. Thanks for, for inviting me.
1: You and I first met back in I think twenty seventeen, uh, and you were running Blue Origin as the president at the time. Uh, a lot has changed since then, so maybe let's start with a little bit of background in terms of Delaune space and and uh, all the different projects that you uh, have your hands in right now currently.
0: Yeah, that's uh, it's been it's been exciting since leaving Blue Origin back in twenty eighteen. I've taken on a portfolio career, I like to call it. So, it allows me to um, consult, uh, advise companies. Uh, also invest, become an angel, angel investor in the space and technology uh, sectors. I am uh, serve on boards of directors. Um, and then I'm also doing some of my own things on the side. So uh, uh, a lot of mentoring. I've been staying really busy and uh, really excited to, to watch the growth of the, the space industry that I've been involved in for decades now, so.
1: And it certainly is growing. And I think the first place, there's a lot to talk about it. But I think the first place I wanna start with you is human spaceflight. Because mm-hmm. you are on the board of Axiom Space, which is poised to do its second mission to the International Space Station, second time we've seen a, a, an all-commercial mission to the ISS. I guess just walk me through a little bit about the business model at that company and, and why these missions are so critical to, to a, a vision that involves commercial space stations in low-Earth orbit.
0: Yeah, well, commercial space stations, I think, are important. I mean, if you if you step back and you look at exploration, I mean, we can do some things robotically. Uh, we send robots to Mars. We send robots to other planets. But humanity, being, uh, we learn so much when humans are involved in exploration. And so throughout the history of the space program, only a little over 600 people have ever flown to space. So, so this generation of space professionals is going to participate in putting the first 1,000 humans into space. Uh, the first 10,000 humans into space. So it's a, uh, we're really at the very beginning of this uh, this human spaceflight journey. A commercial space station not only serves a you know human spaceflight, but there's also space research and development, and space manufacturing, technology development, IT and computing type applications, and things that a space station can do. And we've had this international space station on orbit for two decades now where we've had continuous human presence in low earth orbit, uh, the next logical step for us is to have uh, commercial stations take over where the government has sort of said, we're gonna move on to the next thing, which is going on to the moon and on to Mars. And um, uh, there's an opportunity for commercial space stations to step in and for the government to be uh, an anchor, important anchor customer, but one of many customers for those stations.
1: Yeah, and along those lines, I know Axiom has plans to do uh, the first deployment of the first part of the space station, I believe, in 2025, and then the next in 2026. But it's kind of in a unique position because it's been created by the the man who essentially stood up the ISS, and it has uh, a relationship, a contract with NASA that that um, no one else has in the, in the in the marketplace. Right.
0: That's that's right. Mike Suffredini is the CEO and co-founder of, of Axiom Space. There's no one in the world who's more qualified to run a commercial space station company like Axiom, um, and he's doing a wonderful job. The the, uh, the 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 contract you mentioned is the port contract, which uh, NASA awarded, I believe, in early 2020. And that was really a turning point for the beginning of, of the Commercial Space Station Development Program, or, or CLD, Commercial uh, Leo Destinations Program, that NASA has. Uh, since then, they've awarded three more contracts uh, to three other companies who are building free-flying space stations. Um, so, Axiom is is starting with a module on the International Space Station and they'll build from there and then separate. These other companies are building free-flying stations where they'll start with their, their own module in free-flying uh, free in low-Earth orbit and they'll build onto it from there. So two different approaches, both viable, but uh, the, the leadership at Axiom certainly is unique and in, uh, in their qualifications, so.
1: Yeah, to the extent, I guess you can you can discuss it. I mean, what should we expect from this AX2 mission then?
0: Well, <laughs> AX2 is exciting. It's, it's it's the second Axiom space mission. Uh, uh, it'll fly uh, um, as early as next month. There is a kind of a bit of a tra- traffic jam at the space station right now, so they're working hard to, to uh, find a date. And Peggy Whitson, a very, very highly qualified NASA astronaut who has retired and come to Axiom, is leading the mission along with John Schaffner and two astronauts from the, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. We expect to see Uh, them all perform their own independent uh, research and development, some research funded by others. Uh, I think we'll see uh, similar exciting results from that as we did with AX1 uh, just a few years ago. So,
1: I think to me, one of the most fascinating things in the near to medium term is this notion of creating a one-stop shop uh, for countries that didn't have access to space or human spaceflight before to be able to do so now through Mm -hmm. Axiom. It really sort of speaks to the democratization, for lack of a better term, uh, of low Earth orbit.
0: Yeah, the, the, it's such a great point, Morgan. The, the Axiom Space Access Program, which they just announced at Space Symposium, is, a, is an opportunity for, it's like a subscription model for space. So, uh, governments who are or are not participating in the international partnership with NASA on the International Space Station have an opportunity to um, build their own human spaceflight program and scale it starting with working with axiom to advise on what types of research and development to do Uh, moving on to flying their own astronauts like um, sweden is going to do as part of the agreement that was just announced uh, a few weeks ago with uh, the european space agency and axiom to even a future where a country might sponsor all or a portion of of a space station module for their own research and their own um opportunities so axiom access allows you to sort of scale, um, you know, dip your toe in the water, so to speak, on human space flight and then grow that over time. Uh, it's a really exciting uh, opportunity to, to, you know, because there, there are so many new countries that have uh, their own um, space agencies, Australia, Portugal, Greece, new space agencies that are being announced all the time, uh, Azerbaijan, um, that, are, that are kind of growing, uh, joining, joining the market and uh, recognize that space is important for their national goals.
1: So as we do see this commercialization of space and and just sticking with the theme here of human spaceflight, what does it mean in terms of this marketplace, broader marketplace that is emerging? Because obviously you have these orbital missions from Axiom. You have SpaceX working on private missions and then, of course, contracting out with with NASA and the like. Then you also have this whole suborbital sector too, including Blue Origin uh, Mm -hmm. with New Shepard, which I know you were instrumental in, in pioneering and developing. Uh, and then, of course, Virgin Galactic, which is says it's still on track to, to launch commercial service uh, in, in the coming months.
0: Yeah. And there's there's evidence that they're I mean, they just flew again recently last week, I believe. You know, the key commercial human spaceflight market is really, really exciting. I think it it, it starts out on the suborbital side with New Shepard and uh, Virgin Galactic and some of the others like Space Perspective, giving people a glimpse of what space is like. What does the Earth look like from space? what does our environment look like from space and and how do you uh, communicate that? I think, um, I think we can do a much better job of communicating the fragility of our, of our human, you know, being um, in our environment by um, giving others, uh, giving people an opportunity to go up and experience it. So, you know, it's just, just, it's not just about billionaires or high high net worth people going and doing that. It's about ordinary people. That's, that's why I'm so excited about, you know, how this suborbital market has sort of taken hold in its first year. It's sort of slowed down and that's, you know, I I don't, I don't like to see that. I like, I'd like to see that continue, but, but I think 30 astronauts uh, flew on New Shepard in the first year, after the first human flight, you had the first husband and wife couple, you had the first father and son. You had the first, the oldest woman, the oldest man, the youngest uh, man, you had the first Mexican uh, woman um, astronaut. you had I mean, you had all these first. it's just really interesting and it just goes to show back to this early numbers, only 600 people have flown. So you have an opportunity for for people to really be first in a category and inspire others by sort of taking that that mantle that uh, that stage. And I think I think we'll see a lot more of that. We'll see, we also see that with inspiration 4 um, and we'll see that with the Polaris Don missions this summer, of course, being flown with SpaceX and led by Jared Isaacman. He's done a, a fantastic job of, of promoting the benefits of human spaceflight and pushing the envelope a little bit in, in what can be done. So uh, uh, that's that's very exciting to see. But I think uh, the most important thing on this is I think for this market to grow, it's it's very, very price sensitive. And so we're not going to see the kind of growth that I would like to see until the price really comes down. And that's going to come through competition. I mean, the suborbital flight tickets, you know, you know, they're they're now sort of in the million dollar range. Um, you need to see that price come down into the hundreds of thousands of dollars, um, and maybe you know, maybe the first flight of maybe flights of Starship with humans, you know, in the future is is certainly going to help that. Um, maybe that's the answer. I still think that's that's a that's a few years away. But it'd be nice to see some competition in those markets. To it's coming from Boeing, and uh, it would be nice to see other companies enter the, the human spaceflight market as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. You you raise such a key point, and and I I think it's one that I come back to a, a lot in my discussions about about the space industry and the space economy. And that is, I mean, we can talk about human spaceflight, and it's very splashy and it's really fascinating. It's it's these momentous milestones when you see these when you see these missions happen. Um, but the the economic case for it. Um, and how you make it sustainable on a on a commercial level, um, and how you make it accessible to to a broader swath of the public. I mean, this seems to be we're at this moment where I don't know. It's a, it's almost like a tipping point, maybe where it's like the the economics have to work out in a meaningful way for this to actually become finally finally become sustainable. And I, I wonder how you think about it, especially now that you're you're an investor in different parts of this industry.
0: Well, it's and I and I haven't invested in human spaceflight businesses. Those are Few and far between, and, and unfortunately, this size of check I can write is not going to make a big dent in, in, in one of those companies. But, uh, uh, you know, the launch market, I think, by contrast, has really grown and the, the, the growth of mega constellations, you know, Starlink and Amazon Kuiper, uh, OneWeb uh, is here to stay. You know, I think that um, those businesses are, are far enough along where they're going to get deployed, they're going to get operated, and and their respective operators are going to find ways to um, get get value, extract value out of them. Um, the, uh, the launch market and the human space flight, human space launch market are two different things. Um, and what I mean by that is, is, you know, for example, Amazon Kuiper using ULA's Vulcan launch vehicle to launch uh, is a real enabler for ULA, it, it grows ULA from a primarily national security space launch business into a balanced portfolio of national security and commercial. And so you're going to see that by the uh, by the end of the decade when Vulcan is launching, you know, very often uh, to deploy the the, you know, a portion of the Kuiper satellite constellation, that's going to help them lower costs, improve their operations, or both. But that doesn't make a huge impact. It doesn't have a huge huge impact on the um, human spaceflight market, and so that tipping point or turning point you talk about, we really need other countries to start to step into this market. And um, and it's taken a long time for commercial crew, NASA's commercial crew program, to take hold with with SpaceX Dragon and and soon Boeing uh, Starliner. Uh, we need to see other other companies and other countries step into that that market as well
1: um and of course when we talk about the vulcan rocket blue origin engines and that's another key part of the discussion right it's it's sort of the industrial base and the fact that we saw it kind of eviscerated um and not a lot of competition and now as we've seen this commercial space era uh, unfold um, what that means in terms of the manufacturing capabilities and and what's out there and what and what needs to enter the marketplace.
0: Kind of taking a step back, the the um, all the money that's gone into launch, you know, for Vulcan, for New Glenn, for Ariane Six uh, over in Europe, and then all these startups, Rocket Lab, Relativity, ABL Space, Firefly, um, all of them need a strong network, a strong industrial base. And they need it in the U.S. because these are for the U.S. companies. They need suppliers in the U.S. They can't really go overseas to do that. So the one thing that's been lacking in this part of the the, um, economy, the machine shops, the companies that build valves and components and electronics and wire harnesses uh, is digital transformation. Many of these companies operate on pen and paper or, you know, an Excel spreadsheet. And so. We all need these components. Um, The the billions of dollars that's flown, flowed into these new launch companies, a significant portion of that is is just basically passing through down to these uh, lower tier uh, suppliers. And it's fragile and it's unreliable. Uh, The investments in digital engineering and digital transformation need to come. And I've been spending personal time in this area. Uh, One of the companies I've invested in is Hadrian Automation. In Southern California, another company here in Seattle is uh, is OLIS Robotics. I'm working with the University of Texas El Paso on their Advanced Manufacturing uh, Build Back Better Grant, uh, and then I just closed out a mentorship program with Creative Destruction Lab here in Seattle on their Advanced Manufacturing Stream. So I'm spending you know personal time in this area because I'm I'm passionate about it, and I think that we can't advance uh, here in the U.S. without uh, significant investment in the in the industrial base.
1: It's pretty, it's pretty incredible that we're literally having a conversation about rocket science and in the same sentence, it's pen and paper and Excel spreadsheets.
0: There's companies out there that have, have invested in, in this and, and it takes, um, you'd be surprised, you know, the, the people in the industry, they tend to have this, I'll just create my own tool. Those tools are built on Excel spreadsheets and wiki pages, uh, checklists and, and so then you see you know new companies that get formed, many of them founded by great engineers. you know are coming out of companies like SpaceX and Blue Origin that are that are doing things a different way. You know, uh, Stoke space here in Seattle has actually announced that they're going to sell their enterprise tool that they've developed internally. Um, it's called Fusion. Epsilon three out of LA, former SpaceX founder, building you know and selling a checklist tool, and she's gotten great, great traction. Uh, another company I advise is called Pruitt Ridge, where they're doing a digital engineering tool, also founders from SpaceX. So uh, it's exciting to see new founders coming in who have spent time in this new space industry. And now they want to um, share what they've learned um, with a broader, um, a broader uh, uh, group of companies. So,
1: Other mm. um, are areas that you're very excited about or that you, you'd be looking to make investments in or,
0: or mentor in? Oh, I'm I'm really excited about about the moon. I think that you know that we're going back. You know, in the next three years, there's a dozen contracted missions to go to the moon. So while you know the iSpace mission, you know uh, earlier last week didn't didn't quite get there. Um, uh, they were close. Uh, we'll learn more about what happened there. But they've um, you know it's it's sort of uh, strengthened you know their resolve about going and um, companies like Intuitive Machines and um, Firefly and Astrobotic and uh, iSpace, Blue Origin, uh, SpaceX are all going to the moon, and there's an opportunity for you know new companies to start to build build on top of infrastructure like the lunar landers, the lunar rovers, the commercial spacesuits that Axiom's building, buying those things as a service and focusing on bringing new value to um, to a future in space economy. So. Um, Scientific uh, operations on the moon, lunar resources, um, lunar tourism are all kind of future businesses that can be built now that you don't have to worry about designing and building your own lunar lander. And uh, I think that's exciting. That's something that a, a big program like Artemis uh, in the U.S. and overseas really, really helps with. Uh, it can inspire, but it also brings investment that uh, that in- invests in that industrial base that I talked about.
1: Why is it so important? to go to the moon and have a lasting presence in the moon. What's, I mean, what's, what's the business case for it? What's the economic case for it? Cause we are putting so much money at the U S and, and allies and, and China too. And everybody's putting so much money towards these efforts. And then of course, commercial on the commercial mm-hmm. side and with the investment as well, what's so compelling about it? Why, why is this so important?
0: Well, I think there's uh, there's still a lot to be learned. The moon is our nearest neighbor. It is three days away. It is, um, it can be a stepping stone to Mars. Uh, we can learn a lot exploring the moon, both scientifically and about the human you know, human existence to, to take that next step and go on to Mars. I think um, that is what the Artemis mission is, is designed to do, to go back to the moon, to stay, and then go on to Mars. The answer to your question about economics is not always clear. What is the unit economics, economic value of going to the moon? I think that's to be determined. There will someday be an in-space economy where people are buying propellants in space and buying construction materials. And it'll certainly be be cheaper to source those on the moon than bring them from Earth. There's scientific value in terms of what we can learn about the the creation of the moon that that will help us understand how the Earth was created. But also there's talk of uh, lunar-based radio telescope that can help us learn about the, uh, you know, the entire solar system and help us see things that that we we can't see from Earth or from from space-based telescopes at least of the size we've been able to launch. So I think there's a lot of things. There's a lot of things to be learned. I think that geopolitically, you know, we know China is very focused on the moon. They're focused for economic and social reasons. And um, I think that continues to put sort of pressure back on U.S. and Western governments to to continue investing. And I think those investments we learned from Apollo, those investments have a a long tail in terms of benefit to to humanity. And um, the the idea that we're going to go and stay this time is... uh, is really, can be really inspiring for, for future generations of uh, engineers and scientists and uh, space professionals. So
1: That does it for this episode of Manifest Space. Make sure you never miss a launch by following us wherever you get your podcasts and by watching our coverage on Closing Bell Overtime. I'm Morgan Brennan.